We are the existentialists. Four existential psychotherapists invite you to join us in a dialogue about what it means to live an existentially tuned life. Your hosts are Xavier Williams, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Janelle Dresner, therapist in Edmonton, Canada. Chelsea Stenner, therapist in South Surrey, Canada. And Mihaela Lounano, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 12. In this episode, we're going to be talking about phenomenology. But before we do, we wanted to take a moment to thank all of you for listening and joining us in the dialogue. We've gotten some wonderful feedback, and we got a comment from Ashley from a therapist in the States that, um, with her permission, we wanted to share because it really highlights why we're doing this. And so she says, I was brought here after listening to the Existentialist podcast, and it all resonates so deeply. Listening to your discussions has helped ground me in what I've always known and felt about my calling toward existentialism both in my professional life as a therapist and definitely in my personal life. I think I've gotten off track many times due to overwhelming anxiety and perfectionism, but so glad I stumbled upon something that is helping to bring me back. Excited to keep listening along. So thank you so much, Ashley, for taking the time and giving us that feedback because I think that's really why we started this podcast, to hear that people can find a home both professionally and personally in existential therapy and just generally in existentialism. Absolutely, Janelle. That's a, a wonderful piece of feedback to receive. And I think it's precisely why we started it. I think sometimes we kind of wonder with what people get from our show and what they take away from it. And this is, it's really nice to hear. Yeah, I think similarly to what Ashley said in just talking with different therapists, both that I know and don't know who have tuned into the episode, the response is quite similar that people are really enjoying some of the topics that we're talking about. And it's also so good to get the feedback for us too, to know that, okay, this is something that's needed and important and it's good for us to dialogue about these things. So Feel free to message us on Instagram, on Facebook, to reach out to us over email at hello at existentialistpodcast.com or through our website to be able to give us more feedback or say what you're liking or what you would like to see more of as we continue on and plan our season two. Yeah, and some of you had mentioned on our Instagram, we had asked what topics would you like to hear? And so some of you submitted topic suggestions. So we just want you to know that we saw them and we're factoring them into our plans. They may come a little bit later, but stay tuned. We're definitely going to cover some topics that you have requested. So thank you for that. And please keep it coming with your feedback and any topics you want to hear from us. Yeah, and I also I also wanted to add. Um, I had the chance to talk with some of my clients, and they also were speaking very enthusiastically and highly about the topics that we talk about and how we talk about this impact their lives. And they even try some of the things that we suggested in some of our episodes. So I want to take a moment to thank you to all of you who provided that feedback, and so grateful that it um, it contributes to your lives and you find something helpful in it. 
Okay, so let's get into phenomenology. I think what we need to acknowledge is that it is a long and difficult word to pronounce. So please bear with us as we continue to say phenomenology this episode. We may and that's what we are referring to when we mess up our words. So a challenge to you would be to say phenomenology 10 times fast and see how far you get. I find it helpful to do it in a very exaggerated North American accent so you can say phenomenology. It's the only way I can do it, otherwise (laughs) I just fall over the words. That's awesome. Thank you, Janelle. So should we start with what is phenomenology for people who are listeners who maybe don't know too much? And then after a brief kind of introduction and some historical milestone related to that, we can talk more about phenomenology in our lives, like how we can live actually with a phenomenological attitude and also phenomenology in our clinical practice as therapists. Okay, so phenomenology, so it's it's a long word made uh, of two words, phenomena or phenomenon and uh, logos. Phenomenon means uh, what appears in Greek and logos means usually the science of or the the grammar of, the meaning of, study of. So basically phenomenology means dealing with what appears and like uh, attending to what appears and how it appears to us and then and we see later in the episode how do we understand it and how um, we position ourselves towards it and how do we act given that uh, something it is the way it is. So phenomena means whatever appears, meaning that everything that surrounds us, right, it appears in a certain way to us and how it appears, it's what is the main focus, at least the beginning of phenomenology and then understanding and understanding the meaning of what appears, it's also important. In terms of philosophical orientation, like phenomenology started in the 19th century in uh, Europe. So it's actually what is called uh, generically continental philosophy. And I'm just going to mention some names, like just uh, for people who want to read more or to delve more into the philosophical aspects of phenomenology. Like obviously Edmund Husserl is the one who talked about phenomenology and he came up with the the urge, the encouragement to get back to the things themselves. Like for him, it was a matter of returning to seeing and knowing what is um, the thing itself. Then later on, Heidegger came in and enlarged or um, expanded Husserl's view and actually um, departed significantly from that in certain aspects and spoke about or wrote about and spoke about being in the world, like the human beings being embedded in our world, multiple worlds, like the physical world, the social world, our own inner world, and then attending to our experiences, our lived experiences, and to the meaning, especially understanding the meaning of being. Then other names, Merleau-Ponty, the French philosopher who mainly wrote about the phenomenology of perceptions and embodiment how everything that we do is embodied and how our body and our perceptions are shaping our being in the world. So we'll, um, we'll maybe we'll touch upon um, like embodiment and the live body when we talk later about uh, our therapy practice. Also in France, like Sartre, and was a, was a name in the, in the series of philosopher, phenomenologist. So I think I, for now I leave it at 
that not, I'm sure that more names will come and if not names, at least, um, you know, ways of thinking about this will come. For now, like it's important kind of to situate the origin of phenomenology in, uh, again, European philosophy, continental philosophy, the 19th century, with um, these big names and with the emphasis on lived experience, not with rational logic, but actually with how we experience a situation for ourselves and kind of trusting that experience and trying to understand it and understand the lived meanings of our experiences. So that's um, just a very, very brief introduction and more like for historical purposes to know the origin of phenomenology's philosophy. But now hopefully we can move a little bit into more uh, <laughs> like relatable and everyday impact of phenomenology in our lives and how we actually do phenomenology in our everyday life, and then we can talk about how we do that in therapy. Thanks for that, Mahade. Yeah, it's always nice to ground ourselves in in the origins, the etymology, the the philosophy of it. And certainly, when you read any of those philosophers, it can be quite hard to kind of really understand what they're saying, particularly because some philosophers are not brilliant at writing. They maybe have been brilliant themselves, but not particularly good at communicating. But there is very much this idea of Heidegger's kind of being this kind of, well, what is, right? What is the phenomena? What is the the very essence of an object? What I'm feeling, the person in front of me, all of that. And then that kind of always reminds me of South's definition of existentialism, of existence preceding essence and the essence part being really as least as far as i kind of understand in my mind the essence part being the phenomenology of my experience of what i see what i feel what my body does when i'm in a particular place or when i'm everywhere really no i said yeah like definitely you brought up the word essence right which is like really points towards like the fact that we perceive things, that things are appear in a certain way, but as we attend to them and we let them impress upon ourselves and we understand them in a certain way, we begin to discover more and more what is actually at the core of that phenomenon, what is essential about it. That is that how phenomenology unfolds in our everyday life, I think, and but also in uh, therapy, in research. So getting to the essence, but not understood essence, not understood as something, you know, an abstraction, something that we abstract from what we see or what we relate to or something different than what we see, but really embedded in that experience and emerging from that to the degree that we also connect with our own essential view to our own essence. And to give it a simple example, but of course we're going to expand upon this as we discuss it more. When we talk about the essence, looking at the essence of something, we're talking about the essence is the thing in itself that if it were to be removed, that thing wouldn't be the thing anymore. So for example, with my cat, I'm looking at my really cute cat in front of me. And what is it about her that makes her a cat and not a dog? Because both dogs and cats have two ears, they may have fur, four legs, a tail. What is it about her and her essence that makes her a cat, that if it was removed, she wouldn't be a cat anymore? It can seem so simple, 
But I think when we really start to try and look phenomenology, we realize it's, it's actually quite complex. And there is such a beauty in it because what it requires, and we'll get into this more, but what it requires is such a deeper looking, like to really, really see my cat for who she is. And so that's what we mean by the essence, that thing in and of itself, that if it wasn't there, it wouldn't be the thing anymore. Yeah, that's a fabulous explanation, Janelle, a kind of description of what it is. The example that actually stands out for me is there's this wonderful composer in the U.S. called Morton Lauridsen, and he composes mostly choral music, just incredible pieces. And there's this wonderful clip of him on YouTube, and he tells you how he composes a particular piece. And one piece that he composed, he said, he said, I saw this, and I, I forget which artist, but this tableau, this piece of art, which was just a still life, you know, fruit on a table kind of thing. And he said, and the first time I saw it, he said, I wept which is a rather profound thing to say about a piece of art. Not, oh, well, you know, I can see the texture and there. No, he wept. And then that's what inspired him to write this piece of music. And I would suggest that that was his, you know, almost essential phenomenological experience of that piece of art. It, it moved him. It's so true. What is essential moves us. I mean, you cannot remain indifferent. When we uncover an essence and when we stay with it, remain with it. I think that's a great example too, that it's what is, what is essential really impacts our essence and hence it moves us profoundly. Can you say that again? You said we cannot remain indifferent. Mm -hmm. It moves us so, so. Yes, yes. We cannot remain, indif remain indifferent when we see the essence of a person, of a work of art, even of uh, our cat or dog. Can I read a quote? It just totally ties in well to what we're saying about it moving us. This is a quote from Max Van Manning, who is a phenomenological researcher, specifically hermeneutic phenomenology, but a certain type of phenomenology. But he writes, Phenomenological understanding is distinctly existential, emotive, active, relational, embodied, situational, temporal, technical, theoretic, and non-theoretic, a powerful phenomenological text thrives on a certain irrevocable tension between what is unique and what is shared, between imminent and transcendent meaning, and between the reflective and pre-reflective spheres of the life world. But the practical value of phenomenology also should be found in the sheer pleasure of insight and feeling touched by things that reach the depth of our existence and confirm our humanness. And that's really nice. I like that. I, I love that. So how the, you know, he uses so many words and you kind of almost get lost in the number of words. And then at the end, it's that feeling that, aha, oh, oh, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we can share from our own experience, like when have we had such a moment? Like recently or not recently, but like when have we been touched by encountering the essence, the essential in something and how did that feel? It happens in everyday life. Hopefully it's not just a <laughs> exceptional circumstance. So I wonder if we can take a moment and connect with that. When I was completing my thesis for my master's degree, I used phenomenology as a research method and 
Max Benner was my guide, really, in, in how to do the method. And I would read his work, and it would sound so beautiful. And I would question, this doesn't sound like scientific research. This sounds like art. And it was doubtful until I started analyzing my interviews I did with participants who were actively grieving. And when I started to look phenomenologically at their lived experience of turning toward their losses, it moved me so incredibly deeply. I was transcribing the interviews and at the time and felt, I'm not sure that I'll ever be able to completely capture the essence of what they're saying, even though that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I have to paint it. I have to capture this in a piece of art. So for me, I was so moved by the essence of what I was seeing that I'd never painted before, but I just picked up a paintbrush and got canvas and just started putting what was being moved, the emotions, the joy, the sadness, the confusion, all of it onto the canvas. And then I went back to writing and I would look at it and try and bracket all my assumptions and see how it fit. And it was this beautiful weaving process between being moved and then being with the lived experience of their losses. So it felt a bit mystical, actually, the experience. And that was quite curious to me since it was a research method for a thesis and there needed to be a certain level of rigor. So it was, it was quite fascinating to see how these could exist together. I like that you said mystical, Janelle, because I think different moments that I've had with clients were that the essence of them and their experience has really, really come through. There's such a captivating atmosphere or feeling about it that in that particular moment, it's like nothing else exists in the whole world. It's just you're absolutely present with them and their experience right then and there I don't know there's something like mystical electric mysterious about it that just feels very very strong yeah that's yeah I can relate to that Chelsea with with my clients I was thinking more about myself like when was I moved essentially moved so to speak and I remember like yesterday when I was biking from my office biking home from my office I suddenly turned my head and I saw the mountains covered in snow and then immediately I turned my head a little bit to the left and then there were these, were these beautiful trees with um, red leaves, red and yellow leaves and I was suddenly basically reoriented somehow in time and what uh, taken out of time like wow that's so beautiful and so unexpected at the same time so it uh, kind of almost put me back in time because I was since I'm very, I tend to be very busy, I wasn't really having time to observe those changes and to see both the mountains covered in snow and the trees with beautiful colors. It was such an immediate, like almost sensual, rich experience to, to connect with reality in that moment. And it really hit me and brought me back to, to earth and to myself. And then, of course, the beauty in there was also very moving. Yeah. I can imagine that certainly, I mean, just generally, but also particularly now, you know, given COVID where time is, you know, we all kind of, I think, feel a bit lost in, in where we are in time. And here you saw 
literally a fall trans or autumn transitioning into winter kind of almost right beside each other and kind of almost it sounds like it really grounded you back in okay this is where i am this is in time and to pick up on what chelsea said about yeah and, and janelle said kind of about this mystical experience where it's it is it's just you you're just there and nothing else in the world matters at that moment you're transfixed maybe and the one that stands out for me was with the client that I remember kind of sitting with him and I wasn't sure, I, like I, I wasn't sure about anything. He talked about music and a lot of clients often talk about music, you know, which songs kind of impact them. And it's always an, an interesting pl- place to go. And he you know, said that the only way he could express how he felt was this one, one particular piece of music. And so, of course, well, naturally I listened to it. And it was the most jarring piece of music I've ever heard. I mean, by jarring, I mean like really kind of I, haunting actually was more the, the feeling. And he t- also told me that that piece of music was a kind of a remix of another song by a, a famous musician. And so I listened to that. And as soon as I listened to the other piece of music, the original piece of music, I had this moment where I understood exactly what he was telling me. I couldn't describe, tell you what he was telling me. I couldn't, I couldn't put it into words. But the phenomenological, that feeling, that essence of, I've now understood what you're telling me, was one of the most transcendent experiences I've had. And it actually, in session, then came out. Like It really transformed our relationship and, and really helped me understand where he was and then helped him go through before that i was lost and so that paying attention to how something somebody is saying something to me how they're presenting and they're listening and feeling to what i'm feeling is really as far as i understand the the phenomenological experience or attitude yeah you are so right i mean two things i wanted to say like the very beautiful experience and sometimes yes that uh, mystical transcendent feeling or knowing mystical knowing of the essence coming in touch with uh, another essence and essential experience can be beyond words right it doesn't have to be captured in words but it's so strongly felt like it, and it's a felt body sense of that i got this i i understand it and it's hard to to maybe put in words but you know it, and the other person, I think, know it. I mean, your client, for sure, felt that something was shifted and that was, uh, you You got him, yeah, you understood him. And then, yeah, what you say about paying attention, like, how can we cultivate this attitude, the phenomenological attitude in our, again, everyday life? And I think you said something important, Sav, about paying attention, like opening our eyes and actually to see, not just to look at the many things without um, ling- without a lingering look, right? And trying to see. So paying attention, it's essential. Yeah, there's something from actually that I take from elementary school in art class. And I don't know if this was just unique to the art class I took or if this was more of a general experience as well. But it's something I reflect on often when I think of phenomenology and how to approach myself, clients, other things in life. But I remember being taught that we could freehand draw, say, a glass on the table or something, but I would draw it 
with a preconceived kind of notion or assumption around what a glass is and what it's meant to look like and how it's meant to be. And that would be reflected in in the art that I drew of it. And it actually wouldn't look necessarily exactly like what was in front of me. Whereas instead, we were taught these grid lines. When we drew with those grid lines, we were instead focusing on those little squares and what from the glass could be transposed into those squares. You would just be focusing on one little part at a time and then moving on to the next square and then the next square and the next square. And it would be a much more accurate depiction of the glass that was in front of us rather than something that I could just draw from my own assumptions and preconceived notions or what I was putting onto the glass rather than focusing on, okay, this little square of the glass, this is what is what is before me. And so I will draw this, even if it didn't make sense, because that was also my experience at the time was that I could draw that little square and go, hmm, that's not how I would have drawn it just looking at the glass, but that's how it appears And so I draw it this way. And then with the whole image coming together with all of the squares, it would actually then look like what was before me. And so I use that often as as an example of phenomenology and just to remind myself of that process that, you know, in inquiring and looking closely and being open to how something is presented while bracketing my assumptions and my biases about it, then I can actually see how it really is. I really like that, Chelsea, that as it appears, it's really a wonderful way of looking at something and how you can look at, at something and and see it differently from that little square focus, that kind of one centimeter squared lens, if you like. A few of us have mentioned the word bracketing or bracketed, and this is a really the technical or one of the technical ways of being phenomenological, taking the phenomenological kind of attitude. And that's about bracketing your assumptions, your preconceptions, everything that essentially that you've been told about something before and attempting to, because it's incredibly difficult to just put them aside and then just look at something, be with someone. And for us as therapists is being with the client and just, listening to them as they say things, experiencing them as they display it. And that's taking in their body movements, their smile or their eyes or the the tone of their voice. And again, without preconceptions. So somebody says, you know, I'm sad. Instead of jumping to, oh, well, maybe he's depressed. Just listening to, oh, I'm sad. And what that moves in me, it's incredibly difficult, at least I find it as an incredibly difficult process to do, to put those preconceptions aside. It's not to dismiss them entirely, but to really kind of sit there with somebody, with something, with an experience, and really see what's moved in you, and to use that then as information. Okay, well, so a client's presented whatever they've presented, and it moved me in a particular way. And I can then use that to say, okay, well, you've told me this whole wonderful story, and yet I have this strange feeling in me or this different feeling in me from what you're telling me. I wonder how come that is. It's really a bit of an exploration, I think. I think it's challenging too because, like you said so well with that example of, you know, when the client says you're sad, not to jump immediately to depression 
with that a part of that phenomenological attitude. So having an attitude where you're looking for the essence of what the thing is, in order to have that, we need to be curious. So that's a part of the bracketing process, curiosity. It's the stopping the moment that we make an assumption of what sadness is. And it's saying, but actually, what is it? For you, my client, what is sadness? And to assume that we actually don't know. And to be aware that this is something we can be curious about. Even though we've probably been using the word sadness since we learned feelings. So, I don't know, at least since elementary or even before then. But to pause and say, actually, maybe I do not know what sadness is. So original, and also I, you said about curiosity and openness, and I think Chelsea's example with the glass and throwing it based on the using the grid also brought to mind um, to me that it's also looking and seeing, especially it's a very rigorous process. It sounds a bit tedious, of course, to throw a glass using a grid. Like, right. And some people may say some artists like them say, well, I'm just going to do it the way I see it and I don't care about the grid. Right. But I think in this metaphor, I think what I take from that is that it's very rigorous and in staying with those pieces, these facts, this experience that, that emerge and we don't know what they mean really from the beginning. We move from scraps of facts, as we would say, and to a holistic image, but we And it's very hard to tolerate sometimes the ambiguity, not knowing. We want to know, we want to explain, we want to quickly bring in a shortcut to explain and say, oh, sadness is depression. But actually just to see, to stay open and to rigorously, very precisely stay with what appears every moment with those, uh, the way the glass emerges in that drawing that Chelsea was talking about piece by piece. But you won't see the whole the holistic image until the very end and we don't know what it means. And this is something so counterintuitive and it goes completely against our nature and we are so quickly to use shortcuts and make sense and we don't tolerate ambiguity and openness very well. And it's against the expert model, right? That I know that I have the answer. And and I think in part, I've, I've heard clients say this, I don't want you to say to me that I'm the expert of my life because I'm paying you for a reason and I want you to be the expert that I can get answers from. And so there is a little bit of that, um, either pressure from clients or even more to ease our own anxieties or make us feel more secure and confident to take on that. I do know, I understand, I work with the DSM and I can make sense of it. I found phenomenology to be quite humbling because it's really, we are starting from this place. I do not know. You're absolutely right, Janelle. And the phrase that often comes up for me or, or that clients often say to me is, well, they'll say, well, I'm depressed. And they'll say, well, okay, well, what do you mean? And they will kind of look at me a bit puzzled. They're like, well, I'm depressed. Totally. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, I know what, again, as you said, I know what the DSM definition of depression is. And that's maybe largely true over a you know massive population and kind of on average. But what is your depression? How do you experience it? We know simply that children experience depression and, and manifest symptomatically depression very different to adults. And so we might look at a kid who's irritable and maybe a bit hyperactive and not recognize that they're depressed. Whereas if an adult did that, we'd say, well, you're not depressed, right? You're, you're active and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's very much about 
uh, trying to get clients, at least for me, to to describe, not explain their experience. Like, okay, so what does it mean? What does it mean for you to be depressed? How do you experience it? Not so much so that I can diagnose you, but so that I can understand. Why is that important? Why shouldn't we just tell our clients that, yeah, we went to school? I mean, I think it's a legitimate expectation. We went to school and we should know something about it. What I try to say is like, why is it important like for maybe for our listeners to understand why are we going through all this uh, process that seems sometimes frustrating, like to draw a glass with a, with a grid when you just can draw it the way you want it and to ask the clients all these questions. But tell me, how are you depressed? In what way? What is your depression? Like, why is that important? and why are we doing this? And we do that as a core method in existential analysis anyway, in the type of existential therapy that we practice. What is it so vitally important about that? Because it's also frustrating for clients and for ourselves sometimes. For me, just in answering that question that you posed there, Mahila, I think what makes it vitally important to ask a person what anxiety means to them or what depression means to them or grief or any number of other experiences specifically is, at least for me in my therapeutic process with clients, I believe that experience is what accounts for change in therapy. And so to be able to really enter into a client's experience of depression or experience of anxiety, even if it means to discover that, oh, you know, maybe this actually isn't depression, this might be something else, or maybe this isn't anxiety, to be able to really enter into that and to bring them also into their own experience more fully then really deepens the process. And I think creates that kind of openness that then allows for change or healing or further understanding. And I also think that for clients, some clients are quite phobic or scared of their own experience and they are looking only outside for someone to tell them how they feel basically and what it means. And it's an obsession with what it means, but not in the sense of meaning, but making sense. Like give me a coherent narrative. And if you are an expert and you went to school, it's even better. But there is so much resistance to actually turn towards themselves and to enter that experience and be with it. So I guess uh, to add to what you said, Chelsea, that's also important, like to encourage our clients to befriend themselves and their own experience and that there is no someone out there who will uh, give them a coherent narrative about their own life, that they are solely responsible for that and to search into themselves and into their own experience, accompanied obviously by, by us, by therapists, by friends, actually by partners, and to, to figure out what is my experience. And before even asking what does it mean, I would ask, how do you experience that? Like with depression, if they say I'm depressed, like how is that for you? How do you experience that? And then what does it mean? Because if I ask what does it mean, usually they still give me a story, like a coherent narrative that is shaped by medical models, TV um, ads for antidepressants and all that stuff. It's kind of like what Sav was saying with that ability to describe the experience versus explain it. That often we skip that step and go to the explaining first or the making sense of rather than just describing and really deepening the experience itself. I think part of that too is the slowing down. Phenomenology takes time and we need to slow down to really understand something explaining takes not very much time 
at all in comparison. I think about how fast my sessions would be if I took everything clients said at face value that when they say they're depressed, we both know what that means and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But actually for us to slow down and to really look at something, I think that restoration of the self, I think healing is a much slower process than a lot of us would like it to be. I think that our experience of time changes when we're fully present in the now. And so for me, I know with phenomenology, it's, it's so important to, to slow down. Let's really take this time together and not scroll through like we would on Instagram, like fast, 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 but to really look at something that needs attention. It's obviously causing issues. So we go to, we turn toward it, we look at it, we take time that it needs. I like that taking time, that it does take time. And it's one of the things that is very difficult to answer when you kind of maybe interacting with somebody who's inquiring about services, about saying, oh, I, you know, I'd like to come and see you. Maybe I've never come to therapy before. I have before and it worked or it didn't work. And, and they're like, well, how many sessions would you suggest? And this is a, <laughs> a hugely terrible conundrum as a therapist because you kind of want to offer a, a a light at the end of the tunnel, if you like. But on the other hand, as we know, as we've just been saying, and as you've said, is we don't actually know. And it may take longer than you might imagine, not because you're more damaged or traumatized or screwed up than the average person, but just because it, it does take time to find out what it is for you. Like, what are you suffering from specifically? And that may not be depression. It may not be what we might call endogenous depression. You may not just be a depressive person. You may be actually depressed because about a certain thing, a particular situation. And if you change that situation, suddenly your depression will disappear. And it does. It, it takes time. A very difficult question for me to answer a lot of the time. But again, that shows the same attitude that some some of our clients or even some of us some, at different periods in our lives, we really look for a fix or look for someone to take us out of our own reality of our own life. As if we are saying, oh, I don't like my life the way it is. Can you just give me something, give me a pill to not to wake up in the same life tomorrow? And I think why slowing down and taking time is so important. And both of you reflecting on that is because our life is time and takes place in time. Our existence is time. I mean, Heidegger wrote the book, Being and Time, right? So it's like time is so essential to our being. So if we want to have any chance to understand anything about ourselves, about each other, that takes time. So slowing down is essential for obviously phenomenology, but also for, for living if we rush and if we want just to take shortcuts to have explanations. Because explanation most of the time is a shortcut of how to avoid actually what is really going on in our lives. Then uh, probably like those clients won't look for um, existential, like phenomenological therapy necessarily. And that's okay too. But if it's really uh, someone who's looking for, um, yeah, stepping into their own existence and living and understanding and living with, with understanding, then I think slowing down and being accompanied in that slowing down is so important. Exactly that with understanding. I think when you're a client on the receiving end, like myself as a client on the receiving end, 
of uh, therapists using phenomenology or having a phenomenological attitude, I do feel understood. I do feel seen. There is this look, a deep look at what my lived experience is. And it is such a wonderful feeling to have somebody say, okay, I'm sitting here with you and I want to know what is it for you? What's that like for you? How, what, what does that mean in, in your world? And for me to, to receive the time being given to me is a gift. It's powerful. How might we kind of encourage clients to adopt this phenomenological, uh, clients, sorry, listeners. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in therapist mode a little bit. How might we might invite listeners to adopt an attitude, which as we've acknowledged, takes time and is difficult in simple terms. The simple terms you already said, it's slow down. It's like um, realizing that life is not necessarily a race that we race from one place to another, like finding pockets of time at least, of slowing down. The way it happened to me yesterday, <laughs> biking home, right? To see the mountains and the trees, like slow down. And if something is really impressive upon you, like you see something, stop, pause, take it in and allow to be impacted, allow to really be fully impacted and stay with what feelings come up, what is the emotional experience. And don't, another one would be don't run for a meaning, for an explanation. I mean, we want to make sense so quickly of everything. Like, why do I notice the mountain now? Why does it mean that the mountains and the trees are next to each other? Why, why am I feeling this way? Like renouncing to the why questions in favor of how and curiosity towards oneself. How is it for me? Oh, and how interesting it is that way. And leave it at that. The word for me is what? What am I feeling? Well, what do I see when I see the mountains and the snows? You know, there's snow-capped mountains now today, and I see a, uh, you know, an autumn leaf turning red. And then, what does that do to me? And then the word impress, and the impress is not, oh wow, that's incredible, not that kind of impress, but literally impression, as if somebody's pushing something that's going to mark you, right? Almost like a stamping. Stamping. That's a good way. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, like. And what does that feel like for me? It, we're not talking about facts here. We're not talking about, uh, you know, this is the only way to, to have this. Is What does it feel like for me? And then what does that generate? What images come up for me? What songs inspire in me? What, what does it make me want to do? I think are ways to, to pay attention to how things move you, impress you, stamp you. I think that how and the what are very related, right? Because mm. first it's like, how is it for me? And then what is it about it that is so impactful? So I think it's uh, both like the experience and the live meaning, not the making sense, not the explanation. We're talking, I mean, about two things in the sense we do start with the what, like what are the facts? What am I looking at? What is the thing? What is a mountain? What makes a mountain a mountain? What makes the snow the snow? And then we're asking how. How is it for me? What's going on inside me? And we stop there at that point instead of moving on to that. And what could this mean for my life? And how do I make sense of this happening? And what's my explanation? Mm -hmm. We just stick with the experience. And the experience is comprised of the facts of what is, what is there and how it is for you. Your lived experience of the thing. 
Mm-hmm. But it's what, also what <laughs> it's also what we go we also go to a what again like what is called the phenomenological meaning mm-hmm. or the live meaning. So I, this is how I understood Sav's example, mm-hmm. not so much about the facts, but you are absolutely right. Generally, starts with what is like what we see, what we hear, what is in front of us. This is the what the thinness, like the way you talk it, what makes that thing that thing, right? But then it impacts us, and then we do stay with that experience to understand like what is for me the live meaning not the the explanation but what does this tell me what uh, what do i take from this an example that comes to mind is i remember a friend a very good friend of mine suggesting to me one day that and i think this is a broader kind of philosophical or maybe even physical you know, physics kind of theoretical thing about that rocks are not kind of just these inanimate objects they just move so much more slowly than anything we can perceive mm. right and so that's a bit, little bit of a you know it really plays with your mind a bit mm-hmm. but imagine looking at a mountain and, and looking at a mountain and going this is actually a living thing that is just moving far slower than i can perceive mm-hmm. you know what is it like to look at a mountain and imagine that Right. And so it's a it's a different perspective. It's a different again casting aside your presumptions, your assumptions. That's more like what I think in Husserl or Husserlian terms will be like more like variation, imaginative variations. I was talking more like before going to imagination, just thinking who's what is, before imagining the the mountain moving, actually connecting with the mountain and letting impress upon you. Absolutely, it's it's much more of a. I'm suggesting it as a kind of a door into. Another way of maybe seeing these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's access. Access. Another yeah. point of access for people who may be stuck in front of a mountain and nothing comes. Like sometimes the access point could be through imagination. I think, yeah, it, Husserl wrote quite a bit about that, that we can use those variations like that to access what is, basically. What we've just been talking about is the way for everybody, not just therapists, to take a phenomenological attitude toward their life. I think for therapists specifically, when you have a client sitting in front of you, what I what I would suggest in, in starting to adopt this approach, I think what we all have suggested is to put away our assumptions that we know exactly what the client is talking about, putting away theory, putting away interpretive principles, and just seeing the client as they are, really listening to what they say, and being totally open and curious about how their experience is for them. I think it really starts there. As we draw towards the end of this episode, I wanted to share my most favorite somewhat corny joke kind of that's very on topic hopefully after we've explained hopefully we explained this fantastically well about what phenomenology is and this is wonderful thing you can find on the internet and we'll post on our instagram i'm sure but it explains the difference in philosophical terms about what phenomenology is and so it reads ontology the definition of ontology is what the fuck causality is why the fuck Epistemology is how, the why, the fuck. And phenomenology, the fuck. And in so many ways, like it cannot be described any better. It is, and if we take that example, it's not 
how you describe sex or how you describe the sex that you had with this person. It's it's what you experience in the moment when you're actually having sex at that moment. That's really it. And sometimes you can describe it fantastically well to your friends or to whoever, or sometimes you just retain it for yourself. And it's the most incredible experience or the most awful experience you've ever had, but it, it only gets communicated you know, within yourself. I think you're saying you just live it. <laughs> yes. Yes, a, a whole episode where we've talked about it and Chelsea's just summed it up in one phrase. <laughs> okay. Thank you guys so much for listening and stay tuned for our next episode, which is basically going to be a follow-up to this one. Our existential question for this episode is, how do you take a stand and make a decision in difficult situations? How do you take a stand and make a decision in difficult situations. We look forward to hearing from you. Bye for now. Follow us on Instagram at Existentialist Podcast and let us know your answer to today's existential question. To learn more about us, listen to and learn about other episodes, visit our website at existentialistpodcast.com.